You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the first podcast of our Beyond the Clinic Living Well with Melanoma series. We're going to continue to discuss important topics for our melanoma community, things that we don't often get a chance to talk about in the clinic. And we will be making this series available through a new podcast format. Today's topic is navigating social media. My special guest today is Dr. Don Dizon, the director of the Pelvic Malignancies Program at Lifespan Cancer Institute, head of community outreach and engagement at the Cancer Center at Brown University, and director of medical oncology at Rhode Island Hospital. Dr. Dizon serves on multiple editorial boards and maintains online columns for Medscape, American Society of Clinical Oncology, and for the Journal of Oncologist, and is the chair of the Digital Engagement Committee for the Southwest Oncology Group. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Society of Clinical Oncology. In 2017, Dr. Dizon collaborated with colleagues across the United States and founded the Collaboration for Outcomes Using Social Media in Oncology. Welcome, Dr. Dizon, to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You've had so much experience in social media, and so this is near and dear to my heart because I just tried to start my own, my own Twitter account, but you've been doing this for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I um, was prompted to join probably 10 years ago when I was uh, made a chair of a committee at ASCO, and I, it was called Integrated Media and Technology, so I almost felt an obligation to join Twitter, but I've been doing it ever since. Great. And what's been your experience so far? Well, you know, I, I it's been an, uh, a really important growing experience as a clinician for sure. Um, I think before joining social media, um, we would talk in um, uh, oncology speak, you know, talk around with colleagues um, and it, using the language of, of our profession. But what I learned on social media is that our language can restrict access for others. Um, Certainly, uh, things can get lost in translation. So seeing social media as a way to view others' perceptions on how oncologists communicate and interact has been really enlightening. It sort of um, helps sensitize me to language, for example you know, not referring to patients by their diagnosis, not using cancer as an adjective, mm. not right. using the, you know, this this whole idea that patients fail treatments um, was something that was called out early on when I joined social media. And then all the way to sort of how results are interpreted. Um, you know, talking to colleagues, we might look at a certain data set in, in one way, but in an entirely different data set, 
uh, or an entirely different perspective, I'd say, when patients are giving their own two cents on what that data is telling them. You know, the importance of toxicities as much as effectiveness, for example, is one of the things I've taken away from um, from being on social media, for sure. Yeah, that, that's amazing. So I think what I'm hearing is that you're you're hearing from the patient's perspectives more because you're on social media and they're giving mm-hmm. you that feedback that that helps you sort of with your language and, and how you're you're able to speak with the patients. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think when we when we are in clinic, um, there's still this power dynamic in place of being the physician and then there's the patient in front of you who's scared to death about what you're about to tell them or this journey they're about to take or what a CT scan is going to show. And um, that power dynamic is is uh, essentially um, absent almost on Twitter because you're engaging with a patient population that is likely more engaged and educated about the condition that for which they're undergoing treatment or have experience. And they're much more willing to advocate and to assist in sort of not only interpreting data, but planning the next set of studies. And so it's really um, been illuminating, I'd say, to talk to people who have lived that experience and help plan clinical trials, proper endpoints, the toxicities that they're most interested in. And we're seeing that play out in oncology outside of social media today. Great. So I think what you're saying is it helps you get feedback on the language we use to communicate with patients. There's also an interesting reduction of that power dynamic between patient and provider, which is also good. Mm-hmm. I, so those are a lot of positive things about social media. Do you feel like you're, um, are you using social media right now to engage with your patients in, in a broad way? For example, mm-hmm. communicating with a, a whole population of patients as opposed to just one, one person at a time? Yeah, so the, I think the beauty and the risk of social media is that it is a public platform. Um, certainly it is not the place where I engage patients I am personally treating. And it's also not a place where I provide medical advice for people I've never seen in person, because that would probably be a mistake um, if you think about the lack of medical record review you have for people reaching out to you on social media. So the conversations I have are public. Uh, the engagements I have with individual people are viewed by everybody. So. I think it's it's a it's a strength that you're able to communicate broadly with a population, like you said, rather than um, in private, uh, particularly for what you want to do on social media. What I personally choose to do, which is to enlighten and educate and call out misinformation when I see it. Okay, so you used that big word, misinformation. So I think we're going to have to go down that pathway when we talk about social media. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, two things. One is that we are living in an age, and I think we all need to accept the fact that information is no longer gated. That even as physicians, we don't tell our patients what to read. And we do not show our patients to the sources that they should read. This whole paternalistic attitude or uh, paternalistic view of medicine 
as it relates to information is gone. Patients can access the same information we have and they can access far more, probably much more than any of us would probably feel comfortable with. Having said that, we also know that the physician voice is still one of the most trusted voices uh, in this country. So even though they have access to this unfettered information, they are looking to clinicians to interpret and guide them on where the best information is and how to make sense of it. That tells you right there that we have a role to play when it comes towards pointing to good sources, pointing to accurate data, and also calling out data that's being uh, misinterpreted, data that is premature, and also data that's being cited incorrectly. And our voice is actually, um, we carry weight. And I think all physicians should recognize this is a place where we can make a difference. So I think what you're calling out is for the physician community to come out and and have a voice, more of a voice on social media to sort of talk about misinformation Mm -hmm. and and to clarify things. A hundred percent, yeah. Or at least, at the very least, um, to not shrug your shoulders and and, um, roll your eyes when your patients are coming to you with information that they found or have been provided them from Facebook, from Twitter, from Instagram, because they are usually coming to us with sincerity, looking for our opinion on things. But if we, if any of us, and I think the pandemic has been a perfect storm of how quickly misinformation can spread, if we all had a vested interest in public health, then we would all be on social media promoting good sources, good information, public health, and calling out the information that is likely extending this pandemic and also hurting people. So I, I read an article about um, this, the degree of misinformation in cancer. Uh, this was just published in the journal, uh, the National Cancer Institute in July mm-hmm. of 2021. Um, and I looked at uh, 200 articles in four common cancers and just found a lot of misinformation out there and yeah. some that were actually harmful. I think in the study, they, mm-hmm. they looked at over 32% of uh, articles containing information, but over 30% of them contain harmful information. So yeah. um, this, is, this is not necessarily just benign misinformation that's it's out there, right? No, it's absolutely not benign information. And that, you know, that, that kind of work has been shown over and over again that sometimes some of the most accessed information is also the most harmful Um, And I think we need to understand the dynamics of what makes something um, viral or what makes something more clickable. Um, And it might be about messaging, but yes, you're correct that a lot of information that is being accessed is at its very least um, misinterpreting data, but at its very worst, is promoting um, probably things that will harm patients, for sure. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a great point because in that study and as, as other studies, as you mentioned, it seems to be that the more clickable things, the things that people click on tend to be the ones with more mm-hmm. information as opposed to factual and scientific. So is there something, because yeah. you just mentioned we should have MDs come in and, and weigh mm-hmm. in on this. Is it, is it, are we too dry or is there something about the information we're delivering that, that isn't connecting with our audiences enough? Well, I think that's one of the learning curves that we have on social media. I think, you know, there are certainly content creators, there are verified voices whose voices carry a lot of weight in our society. And it's because I think, especially if I think of the folks around the pandemic, they're promoting or highlighting new data, new information, um, emerging science but they're staying away from technical language. So they're making things accessible and they're, and they're using words that are accessible to the general public. You know, when you start using terms like, you know, in this non-inferiority study of X versus Y, <laughs> I mean, most oncologists don't know what to make of a non-inferiority study. How can you expect the public to understand this as well? And I think that's probably where misinformation actually thrives because they take a very complicated subject and they oversimplify it. I see. And do you think there's also an element of who we are um, in terms of the listener and the audience? You know, I, I saw another JNCI study in 2017 by the same author looking at um, the fact that folks uh, from certain regions of the country, like Intermountain West and, and the Pacific mm-hmm. um, locations, it's sort of where, where, where I am, higher socioeconomic status, uh, things like that. So there are factors associated with folks that uh, typically can may, may um, go, to, go to, to, to other alternative sources of of information, but also alternative medicine instead of actual conventional treatment because of what they're reading Mm -hmm. on the internet. Yeah, I think you're correct on that. I mean, remember that, you know, as much as I I do believe that there is something to be gained by professionals being on social media, it is still a very um, um, uh, homogenous audience. And in fact, the things that appear on our social media feeds, and this has been a criticism of Facebook, depends on the things that we have liked previously. Mm-hmm. So the algorithms on social media don't allow for heterogeneous viewpoints. In fact, they allow for the formation of echo chambers. So that works against us as clinicians, I believe. But it is also the reason that you know people take what they read on Facebook as gospel because they live in echo chambers on social media. The challenge then is how to break through into the echo chamber and not get blocked or silenced um, because of your viewpoint, which might be interpreted as inherently political. I see. So how, how do we do that? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, you know, there have been, and I wrote a Medscape column about this, you know, there are certain approaches that are being used today from, you know, um, confrontation, you know, where, you know, I'm going to call out this person and I'm going to, I'm going to highlight this person and their TikTok or their tweet or their social, you know, their Instagram posts and say, this is this is not good, and this person should be avoided. Confrontation, I'm not sure works for me. Mm-hmm. So I think my perspective is to 
A, um, answer questions that I get on social media platforms, and I assume that people want to engage in an honest way. That's not always true, but that's the starting point that I take on social media. The second is I try to provide facts, and I try to to provide facts based on the evidence, even if the evidence continues to evolve and the facts may change, all right? But, you know, I try to do that using language that is non-technical, you know, really try to utilize the same approaches that we do when we say write informed consents for clinical trials with the aim of having things understandable to everybody. I think it's a really good rule of thumb that 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 should be the approach one takes on social media. The more accessible you ways you communicate, the more likely you are to reach people. And this this is so eye-opening to me because I just got on social media myself. I've been trying to avoid doing this. And of course, doing this uh, this podcast is helping me get onto that, that world and, and learning all about, about that and all the pitfalls that you're exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, are there there's actual, the total harm that's happening from this is something that we do have, is what I'm hearing from you loud and clear is that physicians, the medical community has, has a role to play in sort of correcting what's, what's, what we're starting to describe and what we're starting to mm-hmm. see. Um, this is not reimbursed activity. This is not something that, you know, pe- we're used to as the medical mm-hmm. community doing. Is this requiring a whole way that, of practicing medicine that needs to change, do you think? Well, you know, if you think about um, what we do in medicine, we try to champion public health in whichever way that is, whether it's, you know, you know, doing a community forum event about the, the perils of smoking. You know, there are things we do in medicine that we are not reimbursed for, for time and effort. And I think social media falls into that basket. It calls for a certain degree of altruism uh, to do this. Um, but more and more, particularly for those uh, who are in um, academic positions or um, in research institutions, there are efforts to objectively um, quantify the social media contributions one is one is having on on um, whichever platform. So on Twitter, there are um, there are social media scores that are being piloted and. They're trying to see if it's associated with harder, more established outcomes like publication records, altmetric sourcing, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that is going to be one of the arguments we will have to make, especially for faculty who see the benefits but don't understand or don't really are frustrated by the lack of um, uh objective feedback on it, you know, answering the question, what is in it for me? You know, if I spend two hours at the end of a clinical day, that's two hours I'm away from my family. You know, there's got to be something tangible. There's got to be a benefit. And I don't think the benefit should be to be a verified blue check on Twitter or to be verified on whatever channel or to gain over 10,000 followers, those are those are not the things that motivate me personally. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so if we could get the medical community behind this and maybe more people to, to, to have a voice in this, what do we from the patient's perspective, they're they're online. They're on, they're online all the time now. Sure. They're on these media, and there's the platforms keep on evolving. There's new platforms every day. Uh, where do so where does the patient realistically, let's say it's a melanoma patient coming into this uh, mm-hmm. for the first time, where do they go? Like what are reputable sites, and what if their doctor doesn't do 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 social media? How do they, how do they engage, and and where do they go? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question that has been. Yeah, um, those paths have been forged by others within uh, different communities. So, you know, the community living with breast cancer, for example, they have an established hashtag, BCSM. You put in a hashtag BCSM and you'll find information that's being spread related to breast cancer on Twitter. Um, you can use the same on Facebook and on Instagram. And it's a rapid and easy way to access that community. Melanoma has the same, but there are also voices that are patients, and we call them e-patients, perhaps, educated, uh, enlightened, engaged patients who have learned their disease, learned their treatments, and are a resource for their own community to find doctors to gain access to trials, to identify new treatments. These are patients who are experts on their disease in their own right. And although not trained in oncology, they are living the experience and understand these treatments better than any of us who have never actually received them. So I think for the person who's who needs that support, it does exist on social media. It depends on what platform you're on, and it depends on what platform speaks to you. But if you just use a hashtag and use melanoma on those platforms, it is one way for you to access who is out there. And then it's a matter of sitting back, looking at looking what people are posting, and seeing if this is a community or a sub-community that speak to you. And then when you feel right, it's to join, to, to, to tweet, to post, to, to tag. Um, but I would suggest that we all should be very deliberate in the way we immerse ourselves on social media. So, you know, not rush to join, not rush to post, but just to understand what kind of conversations go on are these conversations that I would want to participate in? And do these voices seem like voices that will be able to complement um, what I'm looking for? So it sounds like what I'm hearing too is from a patient perspective to take a broad look, um, to not try to get into an echo chamber early on, not jump in and, and see what, what does speak to you, but at the same time trying to get a, a diverse set of opinions too. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think about their national websites? For example, the National Cancer Institute has, has uh, a website. They have a phone number you can call for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, cancer.net, which is ASCO's program, is, is, is as a place for, for information written by uh, oncologists. What do you think about those national web- websites or, or national societies? Uh, oh, I think that they're complementary, 100% complementary to what one can access. And certainly, I refer many people to cancer.net and to the NCI um, and to websites. I also refer people to articles themselves by providing links from PubMed, for example. 
Um, I think they're important too because they are viewed or they should be viewed as um, objectively um, published websites that that are devoid of any political spin or political angle or malintent almost and they serve as a way for us who are clinicians to point people towards websites and point people towards information that has been externally vetted. So I think they are very important. Yeah, I was just on uh, this morning on the Cancer.net site in particular, and they actually have an article on, on misinformation and how to spot that and, and uh, you know, how to find trustworthy website information. Mm-hmm. They, they use a, a mnemonic um, th- that, uh, that I thought was, was pretty cool. They call it credible. <laughs> So you make sure yeah. there's, it's current, there's references, um, the purpose is explicitly stated, um, there's disclosures, um, it's uh, conflicts of interest are disclosed, there's balanced content, and there's, mm-hmm. there's a level of evidence. So it yeah. sounds like there's, there's help in, in certain places for people to help to try to think through, you know, what is, it, what is a reliable source and what isn't. Right, right. And I, th- there are other um, sort of uh, clues into how to gauge information sort of highly emotive posts for example uh, tend tend to point towards information that is not particularly reliable the lack of sources is another thing that I do agree is something that should raise a red flag you know I just think we are living in an era where um, if we feel a certain way we can find the information to validate how we're feeling. And that works against the scientific way of evaluating things where you start with a question, not the answer. Hmm. That, that's so interesting because if you think about how we make decisions, there's always an emotional component to it. And yes. what grabs us on social media is the emotional, like that's, that's what we gravitate towards. And, yes. Um, how how does a person come into that and, and try to be objective when that is the natural thing to do? <laughs> so, you know, I think one of the things I've tried to do on social media recently, and I try to do this once a week, is I educate through storytelling. And I think storytelling is mm. one of the one of the um, most effective ways we can message. And so the stories that I tell are stories in oncology, you know, um, uh, uh, the importance of survivorship issues and making sure that things are brought up, the importance of of palliative care, the importance of honest communications, you know, the fact that not everybody survives cancer, and the fact that clinical trials are really important. You know, the way I use social media, it's to sort of humanize oncology and oncologists. So, while I post medical information, I post updates from meetings. I also post things that are personal, that show me as a person. And I think that also helps when we are on social media to show a persona that sort of completes who we are as clinician and as human being. Mm. I think that's important because if people understand who you are um then they're they're more likely to also connect with information that you're 
you're, um, you're, you're, you're engaging with. Um, what do we, you know, I, I looked at some of the studies with, about information and, and a lot of it's related to, for example, use of alternative medications, you know, cures mm-hmm. that are offered relative to, um, to conventional treatment, which often, you know, the stuff we give is toxic. We all yes. know that. And, and so how do, you, how do you still provide control for patients? Because they want that level of control. They want to get their information yep. and they don't want the side effects. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, we're all desperately seeking the cure. How do you take that sentiment and how do we empower patients um, mm. without it going too far into to a direction where we've seen in some of these studies where it actually causes harm? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a very delicate conversation. Um, typically, um, faced with a lack of evidence of harm, of benefit, of activity, for example, you know, it's a very open discussion. And one of the things I do promote is that your physicians aren't going to know everything, you know, and sometimes the most powerful words that we have is I don't know, you know, if it's something that is new and I have never heard of it before, but I have no reason to believe that it's going to be toxic, then I, I actually have an open mind about integrative therapies and say, you can go ahead and try that, and then it will follow you for toxicity. You know, we'll look at your lab work as we would do anyway, and see, make sure things aren't harming you. I think the hardest part, or I should say, the answer I certainly don't want is for a patient not to tell me. Mm. You know, I think it's always important that we have that level of trust and honesty. And I've had situations where patients have been on herbal therapies and not disclosed it and it's only come to light after they've almost gone into an end organ failure situation um you know that's that's when you realize that despite their level of trust in your abilities um they also didn't want to disappoint you and so it was better not to say anything. So keeping an open mind as much as you can. And if there are theoretical reasons why some things should not be taken, for example, I tell people not to take antioxidants if they're on chemotherapy because chemotherapy typically will cause oxidative damage to cancer cells and we don't want it to not work. So it's a theoretical reason. I have no reason to think and I have no data to prove it's true. But it's a theory. I quote it as a theory. And then I provide my suggestion. Um, and that's the best we can do as physicians. Well, so I think what you're also mentioning is like the worst thing is not communicate with the team. I think there, we, we come, keep on coming up with this theme on, on the podcast and on, on, the, on the, the live series last year, which is it's a communication with the care team that mm-hmm. really becomes critical. Um, and to, to make sure that you have that open, trusting relationship with that team. Mm-hmm. It seems like that is really the foundation of, of what you're talking about. Right. And I think just looking at um, cancer care today as sort of um, uh, a multiple engaged endeavor, right? So you might be the patient, but you get a say. You get a say in how we proceed. I can provide you the options. I can provide you my recommendation. Ultimately, though, we'll make the decision together, you know. So in that spirit, even if you think I'm not going to approve approve of what you're doing, it is still important that you tell me. I see. 
Yeah. You know, I, I can't believe we've only stretched the surface and it's, it's been already 30 <laughs> minutes. Just really the surface of this. But what I'm hearing loud and clear is that there's, there are some good things about social media, right? It's, there are uh, ability for us to use the right language to learn and get feedback from our patients, uh, an ability to sort of change the power dynamic, to empower people to, to reach their own uh, potential. It also empowers us to create a collective medical voice to help support our mm -hmm. patients. On the other hand, there's the downside of social media which is this, like, this, this, this could be this runaway thing if we're not here to help engage in the conversation and empower our patients to learn how to engage with the social media and learn how to um, engage with the, the healthcare team so that we're, mm -hmm. we're doing it in partnership and communicating together about it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, remember that on social media, it's all the stakeholders involved in a conversation will be there. And you don't get to choose who listens to you and who doesn't. So it is an opportunity to look at an issue, a disease, with everyone in the room. And that focus group is priceless. Well, I, I imagine we're going to have to have this conversation again <laughs> next year because it'll be a different platform and it'll be a different challenge. But we learned a lot today, uh, Dr. Dizan. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year's. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Come back and join us next month's podcast where we'll be featuring our very own A. Melanomas, Melissa Wilson, having a conversation about caregiving and immunotherapy. Thank you, Dr. Dizan. Thank Thanks you so, so much. For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma.